Ibn al-Thumna liked to drink, but it got him into trouble. One of a number of Muslim commanders in 11th century Sicily who emerged as rulers of small principalities of their own, Ibn al-Thumna laid claim to the cities of Syracuse and Catania. The distant Fatimid masters of the island were increasingly unable to manage its affairs, providing a context in which men like Ibn al-Thumna thrived. As a measure of his growing political capital, he was allowed to marry the sister of his rival, Ibn al-Hawas, the ruler of the central cities of Castro Giovanni and Agrigento, and the most powerful of the petty commanders on Sicily. Ibn al-Thumna's new wife, Mayumna, was no shrinking violet. One day, while Ibn al-Thumna was deep in his cups, he said something disagreeable to her, and she returned the abuse in equal measure. Enraged that his wife would talk back at him, Ibn al-Thumna devised a gruesome punishment. He arranged for her to be bled, and then left her to die, employing the ancient medical technique with murderous intent. Fortunately, Ibn al-Thumna's son had heard the row and summoned his father's physicians, who bound Mayumna's wounds and tended to her until her strength returned. The next morning, a sober and contrite Ibn al-Thumna begged his wife's forgiveness, blaming his drunkenness for his actions. Mayumna, a veteran of Sicily's civil wars, made a show of forgiveness and later demurely asked permission to call upon her brother, the powerful commander, Ibn al-Hawas. Ibn al-Thumna readily granted her this permission and sent along many gifts with her, as was proper. Once arrived at her brother's court, Mayumna related the whole sordid tale to him, and then and there, Ibn al-Hawas swore an oath never to let his sister return to Ibn al-Thumna. Ibn al-Thumna demanded his wife be returned, but his entreaties were buffed. He eventually gathered his troops and marched on his brother-in-law to reclaim her. The two armies fought back and forth across Sicily, until it looked as if Ibn al-Thumna's forces might finally fall. In May 1061, Ibn al-Thumna resorted to a time-honored emergency strategy, employing mercenaries to round out his badly reduced troops. The men he hired were Franks. To be specific, they were Normans recently arrived in Italy from northern France. Under the leadership of Robert, called Giscar, the Fox, and his brother, Roger, and bearing the blessing and banner of the Pope, these Norman warriors crossed over to the island, and by 1091 had made all of Sicily their own. The streams of what a Muslim poet, living in the aftermath of the First Crusade, later called a flood whose extent frightens even the torrents of the sea. And welcome to History of the Utremere, Episode 2, Come from the Land of the Ice and Snow. Our introduction today was lifted straight from historian Paul Cobb's The Race for Paradise, an Islamic history of the Crusade. Cobb goes on to note that Ibn al-Thumna was more likely than not a scapegoat for the loss of Sicily to the Normans. His drinking and domestic abuse were common villain tropes for Muslim audiences, and in reality, the Normans would likely have seized the island even without Ibn al-Thumna's opening of the floodgates. Still, in this story, we gain a glimpse of how Muslims viewed the Crusades. For them, the Frankish Jihad didn't start in 1095 at Claremont, it started decades earlier in southern Italy and Spain. 
This viewpoint is certainly supported by the fact that even Althumna's mercenary and the eventual Duke of Sicily, Robert Giscar, was father to one of the leading crusaders, Bohemund, who will in time become Prince of Antioch. But that's some way off for us. Today, we'll be taking a look at Robert, the Normans, and their conflicts with and for the Pope, as well as their rivalry with both the Holy Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. These conflicts will solidify the position of the Normans in southern Italy and lead directly into their conquest of Sicily. So, what is a Norman? Apart from the number one name for accountants who unwind on Sunday by playing D&D online, the term Norman refers to the people of northern France, a region known as Normandy. The word itself means Northman and alludes to the Normans' origins in the north. In the 9th century, Viking raiders from the icy cold pagan lands of Scandinavia began to not only pillage, but settle throughout Eurasia. To wit, one of these bands of Northmen accepted a deal with the king of France. They abandoned their pagan ways and became Christian, as well as vassals of the king. Their leader, Rolf, became Roland, and the Northmen became the Normands, adopting not only Christian culture, but the French language. The Normans didn't lose all their customs, though. They continued to marry in the Danish way, which means they had lots of wives. Well, really, just one wife and then additional concubines. So what? Kids born out of wedlock is nothing new. But the Normans actually recognized these sons, born to secondary wives. This led your average Norman to produce a lot more heirs than other folks. And well, there wasn't enough land for everyone. And because daytime TV hadn't been invented, there was no Dr. Phil or Oprah to sort out sibling squabbles. Instead, the Normans went to war. A lot. This kept their military prowess tip-top. And so, generations later, a lot of Normans, lacking land back home, began to set out to find their fortune, just as their ancestors had once done. It started with pilgrimages of all the big tourist attractions of the time. Rome, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. Along the way, they became well acquainted with southern Italy, which at the time was the place to be for unscrupulous mercenaries, which the Normans most certainly were. We're going to go over the chaos that was Italy in the 11th century. But if you're more visual, I'd like to mention that there's a relevant map available for you to follow along with at our website, historyoftheoutremer.wordpress.com. That's historyoftheoutremer, one word, .wordpress.com. There's also a map showing the expansion of the Fatimid Caliphate from last week, and a list of sources for the episode so far. I'll be adding more relevant maps and diagrams as we go along, so keep an eye out. At the turn of the millennium, three Romes faced off over control of the boot of Italy. The first Rome was the Eastern Roman Empire, based out of Constantinople, a.k.a. Byzantium. The Byzantines had held on to southern Italy and Sicily for centuries after the western half had collapsed, and though their grip had loosened some, it was going to take a strong blow to get them to let go entirely. Sicily had been lost to the Muslims, that's true, but they still held territory in the far south and in the coastal regions, where they could easily send reinforcements to back up their claims. They also had close ties to many of the Italian trading cities in the region. The second Rome was the Holy Roman Empire, which as Voltaire famously put it, was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. It was, in point of fact, a federation, 
of various kingdoms, duchies, counties, and principalities. Most of these were German, and German culture dominated in the empire. At this time, the empire also held the Kingdom of Italy, which comprised nearly all of northern Italy. And the third Rome was Rome. Well, the city of Rome itself. At this time, mostly controlled by the papacy. By this point, the Latin Christians in the West looked to the Pope, and only the Pope, as the head of their church. This brought the papacy into conflict with both of the previous Romes. The Byzantines viewed their emperor as the ultimate head of Christianity. The Pope was just another patriarch, equal to the patriarchs in Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, or Alexandria. And the Germans viewed the Pope as either a puppet they could use to bolster their own strength, or an obstacle, which stood in the way of absolute monarchy. An independent Rome, controlled by the church, answering to no emperor? That's crazy talk, they said, but in Greek and German. And as for the other locals, aside from the land held directly by the Byzantines, the rest of southern Italy was divided between the remnants of a once great Lombard kingdom. The Lombards, or Longbeards, were themselves originally Germanic in origin, and had set up shop in Italy not long after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. Some centuries later, some guy, I, I think his name was Charlemagne, really did a number on him, and only the southernmost Lombards were able to hold on to land. These three Lombard counties, Benevento, Capua, and Salerno, often engaged in war with each other to expand their tiny borders, and oscillated between allegiance to the Pope, or whichever Roman Empire was most convenient at the moment. And on the western coast, the mercantile cities of Naples, Amalfi, and Gaeta were supposedly under Byzantine control, but in reality they functioned more like independent city-states, focused on trade. Sharp-eared listeners will recall the Amalfitan merchants who sparked a riot in Fatimid Egypt. And all of these Christian empires, kingdoms, counties, and city-states kept a nervous watch on their Muslim neighbors in Sicily. Sicily had once, just like the rest of southern Italy, been under Byzantine control. But the Muslim emirate in northern Africa, the Aglabid dynasty, had taken it from them. And then, when the Fatimids rose to power and conquered the Aglabids, it passed into their hands. However, as the Fatimids focused more and more controlling Egypt and their rivalry with the Abbasids in the east, Sicily had slipped out of direct control, and into disunity as well. Now, rivals like Ibn al-Thumna and Ibn al-Hawas duked it out for control over the island. In this unstable environment, the Normans quickly found a need for their services. They weren't picky about their employers either. They originally gravitated towards work under the Count of Salerno, a Lombard named Guaymar. But soon enough, they'd also signed up with the Byzantines for an invasion of Sicily. The Byzantines had put together a truly multi-ethnic army, a real A-team. Apart from the Normans and their own Greek-speaking forces, they'd brought in their shock troops, the Varangians. The Varangians were Vikings from the north. Some of them came directly from Scandinavia, and some came from Kievan Rus a federation founded by Vikings around, you guessed it, Kiev. So these guys and the Normans were basically all distant cousins, and their leader was Harold Hardrada. Now, Harold was a pretty interesting dude. We won't get into his entire biography, but after fighting for the Byzantines for a while, he ends up king of Norway. And then, in 1066, when the king of England dies with no heir, he decides to press his claim for that crown as well. 
that endeavor will claim his life at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, when his army is totally smashed by Harold Godwinson, who himself won't have time to savor the victory before being demolished by, get this, a Norman, the Duke of Normandy, William the Bastard, who trades in that nickname for one you might already know him by, William the Conqueror. He starts an era of Norman control over England that will not only drastically shape the country of England, but the English language. As in language, a word from French. Norman French. These friggin' Northmen are all over the place, I tell ya. From London to Kiev to Antioch. Now, back in 1038, William the Bastard was still trying to solidify his control over Normandy, and Harold Hardrada was fighting alongside Norman forces. This motley crew of Greeks and assorted Vikings made their way to Sicily, where, after some initial successes, politics back in Constantinople turned the campaign into a total fiasco. After fights over payment, most of the hired mercenaries abandoned the mission. The Normans who participated came away with nothing to show for their efforts but experience for the old mercenary CV. Well, that and first-hand knowledge of just how weak the Muslim position in Sicily was as well as just how unorganized these Eastern Romans were. The incursion also served to advance the career of one Norman in particular, William Ironarm of Hopeville. He earned his nickname Ironarm after besting the Emir of Syracuse in a duel. Because, of course. Ironarm was the son of Tancred Hopeville, a Norman knight. Tancred would likely have been forgotten by history, except for his impressive baby-making skills. Over the course of two marriages, Tancred had 12 sons reach adulthood. That's not counting his daughters or the children that died in infancy. What's more, most of these sons themselves would live long lives, popping out new Normans just itching to go a-conquering. And it's through their exploits that the Hauteville name lives on. Eight of Tancred's 12 sons would make their way to Italy, and the first two were his oldest, William and Drogo. More will come. These Norman knights are like roaches. If you see one, get ready to see dozens more within the week. Eventually, the Normans found themselves as the military leaders of a Lombard revolt against Byzantine control. They used the revolt to advance their own position. And even after the locals themselves mostly abandoned the cause, the Normans continued to tighten their hold over the land. And when William Ironarm died, his brother Drogo became leader of the Normans in Italy. Drogo will continue to make life hell for everyone in southern Italy, and just keep stirring up trouble. In 1047, in an attempt to return peace and balance to the region, the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry III, came down to Capua, and made a monumental mistake. To try to balance out the rival Lombard powers, he recognized Drogo of Hauteville as Count of Apulia. And so it was that as Count of Apulia, Drogo of Hauteville greeted the arrival of his half-brother, Robert, in 1047. However, Drogo was distrustful of Robert. His younger brother was a product of Tancred's second marriage, and a bit too ambitious for Drogo's taste. So Drogo sent Robert off to the frontier. He gave him control of a small, shitty fort in Calabria on the border with Byzantium. Drogo had basically sent Robert off on a fool's errand, likely hoping that, if it didn't kill him, it'd at least keep the younger Oatville too busy to cause trouble in Apulia. Nevertheless, Robert excelled. It was in Calabria that he developed the survival skills he would carry with him throughout his life. Decades later, the Byzantine princess and historian, Anna Komnena, wrote of him. This Robert was Norman by descent, of insignificant origins, in temper tyrannical, in mind most cunning, brave in action, 
very clever in attacking the wealth and substance of magnates. Most obstinate in achievement, for he did not allow any obstacle to prevent his executing his desire. His stature was so lofty that he surpassed even the tallest. His complexion was ruddy, his hair flaxen, his shoulders were broad, his eyes all but emitted sparks of fire. Thus equipped by fortune, physique, and character, he was naturally indomitable and subordinate to nobody in the world. It was in Calabria that Robert earned this description. He would pillage and plunder to survive and go so far as to ransom a close friend for some much-needed cash. He would also gain, from a close ally, Girard Buonalbergo, a wife, Alberata, and his nickname, Le Guiscard, which roughly translates to the fox or the wily. As that description of Robert hints at, the Normans had not at all taken care to wage anything resembling an honorable or chivalrous war in Italy. Often, their tactics took the form of outright terrorism against local populations. Apart from the rape and murder that tended to follow the capture of cities, the Normans would also bully the locals into forking over protection money. One of Giscard's favorite tactics was to set fire to the fields and demand cash to put the flames out. It was this sort of thing that led some to refer to them as no better than barbarous pagans. Maybe the Normans weren't so far removed from their Viking ancestors after all. From Rome, Pope Leo IX decided enough was enough, and that it was time to subdue the Norman terrorists. Pope Leo had only recently taken the seat of St. Peter. During the last few centuries, the appointment of popes had become a very corrupt affair. Many popes, like Leo, were named by the Holy Roman Emperor. Once in office, they had to deal with the rampant corruption in the city of Rome and throughout the church as well, not to mention do their best to stay on the emperor's good side. Pope Leo, despite being named by the emperor, was not having any of it. He was a member of a reformist movement that throughout the century would strive to put more direct power in the hands of the pope. To do this, in the short term, Leo needed to ensure that Italy was pacified. So of course, these Normans needed to be put in their place. His opportunity to strike came when Drogo of Oteville, Count of Apulia, was assassinated. Though no direct evidence was ever found, his murder was likely funded by Byzantine gold. Constantinople was similarly sick of dealing with Normans encroaching in on their territory. From this mutual aim, an alliance was formed. Pope Leo was able to recruit an army from within the Holy Roman Empire, including a corps of Swabian infantry, hulking warriors wielding enormous two-handed swords. Around this, he added a grab bag of local Italian forces. Altogether, they were a larger force, but their disunity compared to the Normans would prove to be a huge disadvantage. The loss of Drogo also wasn't the destabilizing blow the Pope had hoped it would be. After all, there were plenty more Oatvilles where that one had come from. Soon enough, a third son of Tancred was in charge of the Norman forces. Humphrey of Oatville took up his brother's spot as Count of Apulia. It's like whack-a-mole with these guys. Before the Pope and his men could march down to Apulia, Humphrey had already dealt some early defeats to the Byzantines. These stinging losses probably gave Constantinople a bit of pause, and they would be incredibly slow at sending any further reinforcements. The Pope tried to stall and wait for further Byzantine backup, but soon enough, the Normans had forced him into a pitched battle at Civitate. At first, it seemed like the Normans were the underdog. They were outnumbered and in bad condition. They'd been running all over in the summer heat, trying to score as many victories as they could before the Byzantine forces coming from the east and the papal forces coming from the north could join up and wipe them off the peninsula for good. 
What's more, the residents of the area had taken to hiding food from the Normans, and the evening before the battle, they'd been reduced to just chewing toasted raw grain. So, with nothing but a couple medieval bran flakes in their bellies, sweating in their tin can suits of armor, they must have looked a sorry bunch. Still, they had no alternative but to fight. If they waited any longer, the sheer number of the combined Bizopope force would decide the battle for them. On June 18th, 1053, the Normans met the papal forces in battle, and the eventual Norman victory was predicated on two things. First, their exceptional heavy cavalry skills, and second, their martial discipline. The Normans were able to keep their eye on the prize and operate as a well-oiled machine. Multiple times, the various cavalry units were able to support each other and take advantage of weak points in the enemy lines, such as when the wily Norman himself, Robert, brought his knights from the left wing into the center and split the Swabian line wide open. That is, after having three horses killed out from under him. When all was said and done, the Normans had clearly established their military superiority, and they'd even captured the Pope himself. It must have been quite odd, after all. The Normans were fervent Christians, and when receiving their new hostage, they all made a show of prostrating themselves on the floor before him. But don't get it twisted. The Normans were businessmen, doing business. And in this case, business meant holding the Pope in captivity for nine months until the old man agreed to accept their demands and acknowledge their right to govern in southern Italy. But when he finally did so, the Patriarch of Rome must have had his fingers crossed behind his back. Because not soon after being let go, he sent a delegation to Constantinople to coordinate a new coalition to expel the Normans. However, the delegation, or papal legates, had another, secondary motive. A motive that would really screw the pooch in terms of making another alliance with the Byzantines. The reform movement within the church wasn't only trying to get out from under the German emperor's thumb, they were also eager to assert their primacy within the Christian church. This conflict between Eastern and Western churches had been brewing for centuries. Not only were there cultural differences, including the divide between Latin and Greek-speaking churches, but in the East, the five patriarchs in Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem were all equal, with the patriarch in Rome, the Pope, being the first among equals. But as the West developed its own identity, the Pope had become more and more important, to the exclusion of the other patriarchs. Now, he wanted recognition of not only his superiority to all other patriarchs, but for the orthodoxy of Western ritual practices. Shortly before the visit to Constantinople, the Pope had received a letter from a bishop within the Byzantine Empire. This bishop had taken the time to enumerate the various unorthodox practices in the West, and then had had the gall to call the Pope out on it. Now, even though this had been one bishop acting on his own, somewhere along the line, some wires got crossed, and it was interpreted as an official imperial communique. The legates carried with them a detailed response, refuting every single point. This was supposedly a side quest. The focus was totally on an anti-Norman alliance. Totally. You can guess what happened. After months of fruitless meetings and arguments, on July 16th, 1054, the legates burst into the Church of Holy Wisdom, the Hagia Sophia. There, in the middle of the Eucharist, and in full view of the churchgoers, they delivered a notice of excommunication against the highest dignitary of the Byzantine Church, the ecumenical patriarch himself. 
An important point, however, is that by this point, Pope Leo had actually died, and the legates were fully aware that whatever they did had no official bearing. That is, there was no pope to sign off on their nonsense. It's likely, then, that they meant this excommunication to be more of a symbolic act, with no actual weight to it. An assertion that the pope and his office stood above the ecumenical patriarch, and even the Roman emperor. One of the legates, Stephen, would later become pope himself, and despite having excommunicated the patriarch, he still had perfectly normal relations with Constantinople and would even try, again, to team up against the Normans. Today, this event is known as the Great Schism, and it's cited as the breaking point between the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches. At the time, though, it was not perceived quite so seriously. I mean, sure, after the legates left, the emperor had them revenge excommunicated. You know, typical response. You're excommunicated. No, you. But it seems like they all pretty much just forgot the whole thing soon after. As I mentioned, one of the legates would continue to enter into talks with Byzantium, and when the Crusades do come around, I promise, we'll get there. When they do come around, the two churches will collaborate without any mention of a supposed schism. It wasn't the first time Rome and Constantinople had a falling out. Similar disagreements had occurred before. Such was the nature of medieval diplomacy. The Great Schism was reinterpreted as such by early modern historians. With the benefit of hindsight, we can see that from this point forward, the two churches and societies will have diverging interests. The Ultramar kingdoms will definitely contribute to this, as they will be of the Latin rite and maintain the Byzantine church officials at arm's length, leading to further controversy. And still, this was not the end of Norman influence on the Roman Catholic Church. After his death, Leo IX was followed by Pope Victor II, who died just two years later in 1057, he was followed by our legate friend, Pope Stephen IX, who lasted even less time and died in 1058. One pope puts the kettle on so the next one can have a cup of tea, I guess. At this point, the Roman nobility had decided it was their turn to play, so they arranged for a puppet of theirs, Benedict X, to be elected pope. But the reformist movement within the church had had enough. Enough of weak popes in the pocket of either the Holy Roman Emperor or corrupt local aristocrats they declared the election of Benedict irregular and put forward their own candidate, Nicholas II. But Nicholas was not sitting in the Vatican yet, and he knew that if he was going to remove Benedict from power, he was going to need military backing. He could, as many others had done before him, go to the Holy Roman Empire for assistance. But the whole point of Nicholas was establishing an independent papacy. He needed a military force that he could enter into arrangement with on equal footing someone who had as much to gain from this partnership as he did. And so, he turned to our favorite merry band of mercs, the Normans. By this point, Humphrey of Oakville had died. But before doing so, he turned over the family business to who else? Another Oakville, his brother, Robert Giscar. Good old Tancred really made sure the world would never lack for Oakville brothers. And so Nicholas enlisted the aid of the new Count of Apulia, Robert Giscar of Oakville. And sure enough, the sight of Norman forces advancing on Rome was a scary enough image to shut the local elites up and secure Nicholas's position in Rome. The newly minted Pope Nicholas II used this moment to enact a lasting reform. 
at the Lateran Synod in 1059, he announced that no longer would the Roman aristocracy or the emperor be allowed to interfere in papal elections. From now on, the decision was to be made by the cardinals of the church, a system which remains in place today, albeit with a few minor tweaks and the genius addition of some white smoke. But what did Robert gain for his troubles? Well, the Pope confirmed him as, quote, Duke of Apulia and of Calabria, and with the aid of both, future Duke of Sicily. So, not only was Robert given papal support to consolidate his rule over much of southern Italy, but he was given a new target for inclusion into his growing domain. Sure, there was no outright declaration of holy war or a call for Christians to take the cross and join the fight in Sicily, but let's take stock of this event. The Pope was essentially staking a claim on Muslim land, and even dictating who it would go to once wrenched from the infidel's hands. The First Crusade, beta version. Papal army recruitment, still under development, but soon to be incorporated. Let's actually pause for a second and look at the Norman phenomena from the perspective of the papacy. The Normans and their rise to power were tied up in the development of the new independent church. They had exposed the cracks in Byzantium's presence in the West, and Byzantium's inability or unwillingness to prioritize Italy over other concerns eventually led the Pope to accept the Normans and allow a schism to develop between West and East. At the moment, what probably mattered more for Constantinople was that Nicholas had recognized the Normans' conquests in Italy, territory they'd taken from the Romans. It would take a lot of work to move towards a full reconciliation. This alliance with the Normans had also allowed the Pope to get out from under the German Emperor's thumb, and firmly declare that papal elections would be an internal church affair from now on, ensuring, in theory, that no more puppet popes would be elected. Instead, popes would work to develop the church's aims, and they'd also foreshadowed how the papacy would be directing their newfound independence. They couldn't just let the Normans sit idle, so they gave them a new target, the Muslims in Sicily, a long-standing thorn in the side of Western Europe. If the Byzantines weren't going to deal with them, someone else had to, and bored Normans were bad news for everyone, so win-win. Soon, the Pope will realize that war against the infidel is indeed a good way to build up an army of his own, and go looking for targets further afield. Back in 1061, the ink had barely dried on Robert's new oath to the Pope when he marched on Sicily. As I mentioned in the intro, he originally entered Sicily as mercenary support for a local Muslim ruler. Yet, given the explicit papal support, Sicily had clearly already been on the to-do list for the Giscar. Still, it would take 30 years before all of Sicily yielded to the Oville clan, and unfortunately, Giscar will not live to see it. He died in 1085, though we need not feel sorry for him. Son of a nobody knight, he died the ruler of all southern Italy. The kingdom he and his brothers carved out would last until the unification of Italy in 1816. He took what had been an anarchic stew since the collapse of the Western Roman Empire some 500 years earlier and consolidated it under one banner. However, Robert wasn't always successful. On his last expedition in 1081, he'll decide to bite off a bit more than he can chew and make a bid for all of Byzantium. We're a millennia removed from Julius and Augustus Caesar and all that, what most people think of when they hear Roman Empire. But the Romans are still alive and kicking and speaking that good old la Greek. So next time, we'll be taking a look at how the Romans are doing. Spoiler alert, not good. <laughs>